Okay, we are uh, today. We are uh, beginning Genesis chapter ten, which, uh, by the implementation of higher math, we deduced that last week we were in Genesis chapter nine. So before we look at ten, which I know you're all just dying to get to, it's such an exciting chapter, and it really is. It's a pretty neat chapter, but. what do you remember that we talked about last week there uh, in the last uh, half or so of Genesis chapter 9? And those of you who weren't here are excused from answering. The rest of you? <laughs> it's an open book test. <laughs> it's an open book test, yes. What's the subject of chapter 9, most of chapter 9? Covenant. What covenant? Okay. Okay. And who uh, or what? Uh, with whom is this covenant? Uh, what we call the Noahic covenant made. With whom is it made? Every all creation. Okay. All creation. And it specifically is what? What is the covenant? Okay. There's never going to be another catastrophic worldwide flood like uh, like uh, they had just experienced, okay? And uh, what else did we learn? Okay, to remind whom? Is that what we said? <laughs> Who is it? Pardon? To remind God. Okay, that's the fascinating thing about the rainbow is he says there, he says he put it in the clouds and he says, when I look at it, then I will remember. Why does he say that? Why is it important for, I mean, it is important for us to remember, but, but, but why doesn't he make a point of us remembering through the rainbow, the covenant? He, the covenant is made by God. Okay, it's an unusual covenant. Most covenants are two-party covenants. Okay, both parties have obligations and responsibilities. But the Noahic covenant is a unilateral covenant. It's completely dependent upon God. Okay, and so He's given this. He's put this sign in the heavens, and we get to see it because when we see it, it reminds us, and it does serve that purpose, of course. It reminds us that God is acting that God is remembering and that God is preserving the world and not destroying it by a flood. Anything else from last week? To have a rainbow, you have to have clouds and clear sky. Okay. And we only see the rainbow when we look at the clouds. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that an interesting thought? Uh, just, that fascinates me that, that uh, when we're looking at the clear skies, we don't need the rainbow. <laughs> when we're looking at the clouds, we need the rainbow. Yeah, uh, Ruth, you raised your hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what we talked about at the end of the lesson. That that uh, as the descendants of Japheth, the Gentiles dwell in or have the benefits of the tents of the tents of Shem. It, it's a picture for us of the Gentiles becoming partakers of the salvation that's offered through 
Shem. We'll talk more about that today as we get into chapter 10. What else? I want to know how many people have ever seen a double rainbow. Oh, I have. Oh, I have, yeah. Yeah, they're pretty cool. I saw a triple one. Saw a triple? <laughs> There's one upman over here. He's got. <laughs> Oh, this had to be a sign. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, this is a sign. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what else did we talk about last week? You all haven't mentioned. Yeah. Noah, Noah stumbles. We read a lot of good things about Noah, but it reminds us that the most righteous people who live on the earth are still sinners. And, and Noah, of course, stumbled. And, and for whatever reason, we have no idea. Here's a guy who's you know, 600, 700 years old, and you think he'd know better. But, <laughs> but even those of us who uh, are more advanced in years have our moments of folly, and, uh, and Noah did. Good question. I had no idea. Yeah, maybe that's what he was drinking about. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> and uh, yeah, really, what do I do with all this lumber with pitch all over it? <laughs> uh, and what, what's the significance of this event with Noah, where he gets drunk and and uncovers himself in his tent? What's this? Why does it even talk about that? Okay, it served as a stumbling block in the in the path of his son. Now we don't assume that 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 uh, Ham was you know completely innocent in the matter. Uh, I, I suspect, and as I indicated last week, I'm sure that he was very much inclined to these kind of immoral thoughts or and and things that whatever was going on there, but. But his father's sin gave an opportunity of expression to the inclination in Ham's heart. And so Ham, of course, uh, engages in some kind of voyeurism or what we don't know exactly. And the scriptures are very delicate in how it handles the situation. So we don't know the total nature of it, but it appears to be that he was that that, that he uh, took some pleasure in looking at his father. And, you know, it seems you know, it's kind of gross to even talk about. But this is, in fact, what happened. It's the nature of sin. It's gross. All sin is gross. And uh, so, at any rate, he does this. And the result of this is what? Curse. Okay, a curse upon whom? Okay, upon one of his sons. Okay, now, I understand, again, as I said last week, that the curse is descriptive rather than prescriptive. In other words, it's not that Noah just decides, okay, I'm because of what's happened, I'm going to invoke God's punishment on on Canaan, the son of Ham. That would seem very unjust. Uh, Canaan wasn't involved in it at all. But I think what's happening here is that Noah prophetically, with the, with the eyes of a prophet, is seeing what's going to happen in the future. And he anticipates that this characteristic that is present, this, this uh, sensuous... Uh, uh, tendency in the in the heart and life of his son Ham has been 
transferred or, or has, has passed, he's passed on to his son Canaan and he's going to see that manifested in, his, in the descendants of Canaan, not so much in Canaan himself. And that is in fact what we see historically. The Canaanites become extremely sensual, sexual, uh, perverted uh, people and we see that brought out in the book of Leviticus and, and in other places. So, uh, <clears throat> Okay, anything else before we go on? All right, uh, let's pick up then in chapter uh, <clears throat> chapter 10 and we'll just read down through the whole chapter. It's 32 verses, but it's not very long. And I'll no- I want you to notice here in verse 1 of chapter 10, it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's a signal of something to us. What does that signal to us? Okay, it's a new Toledot. We're starting a new section of Genesis. Remember? The book of Genesis is broken down into the prologue, chapters 1 up through about uh, chapter 2, verse 3. And then beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, we have the ten divisions of Genesis, the ten Toledots or the ten accounts or the ten generations, depending on how you want to say it. But there are these ten distinct accounts. And the first account was the account of the heavens and the earth, which begins in chapter 2, verse 4. And then following that, we have the account or the generations of Adam, okay? It's uh, the, the Toledot, the account is named after Adam, but it's, uh, it's really about uh, the fall, about uh, Adam and Eve's uh, fall, and then about their son Cain and, and Abel and that whole thing. And then when we get past that, we have uh, the account of uh, the generations of Noah, okay? Uh, and uh, with the account of the generations of, of uh Noah, we have the story of the flood, okay? Now we're entering into a new Toledot, and that is the account of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. As he says here in verse uh, 1, the sons of Noah and sons were born to him, born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphoth and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish and Kittim and Dodanum. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. The sons of Ham were Cush and Mizraim and Put and Canaan. The sons of Cush were Sheba, or excuse me, Seba and Havilah and Sabta and Rama and Sabteca, and the, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Now Cush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ur and Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Mizraim became the father of Ludum and Anamim and Lehiban and Naphtulim, excuse me, Naphtuhim, and Path. Thrusim and Kasluhim, from which came the Philistines and Kaphtorim. Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite and the Amorite and the Gergesite and the Hivite and the Archite and the Sinite 
and the Arvadite and the Semarite and the Hamathite, and afterward the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go towards Gerar as far as Gaza, as you would towards uh, as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboam as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, and by their nations. Also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber and the older brother of Jephthah, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arpachshad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hul and Gether and Mosh. Arpachshad became the father of Shelah, and Shelah became the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktam. Joktam became the father of Almadad and Shelef uh, and Hazarmah and Jerah and Hadaram and Uzal and Dikla and Obal and Abimael and Sheba and Ophir and Havilah and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktam. Now their settlement extended from Mesha as you go towards Sephar in the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these nations were, uh, were separated on the, and out of these the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. So you read that. <laughs> I should have had all you read it. Just <laughs> uh, Obviously, I stumble over some of those and I don't even know that the pronunciation is exactly right on them, but it's the best I could do under the circumstances. And I'm sure you all read that passage and you're going, man, I can't wait to dig into this one. <laughs> But in reality, this is a very significant passage. And it really is full of significant and even implications for you and I. And, and so I really, as I was studying this passage this week, I was really excited about it and I'm looking forward to talking about it this morning. It's what we call, this chapter is what is called by commentators and Bible scholars, is called the Table of Nations. Okay? It is a description of where all these various nations that comprise the population of the earth at the time of the writing of Genesis uh, occurred, how they came about and how they happened to be in the location that they're in. And of course, the actual spreading out of these nations is something we'll look at next week when we get into chapter 11 and the story uh, of the incident there at, uh, at Babel or Babylon. But... Uh, but this table of nations that we read here in Genesis, is, it's kind of interesting because you'll remember that when we talked about the story of the flood, in the, which we just finished in the previous Taladon, we talked about that story. One of the things we talked about was how many different accounts of a great cataclysmic or worldwide flood there are all over the world. So there are literally hundreds of, of, of cultures and hundreds of people groups around the whole, all over the world, South America, North America, Europe, Mesopotamia, Africa, Asia, all over the world, 
that have flood legends, okay? Which is something that you would expect if you had, if you'd really had something this big in people's history, they would remember it and they would talk about it, okay? And so that's in fact what we, what we experience when we look all over the world. We find these numerous different flood accounts, okay? Many of them with, with things strikingly similar to the biblical account of the flood, okay? But when we get to the table of nations, we have some, we have a totally different uh, uh, aspect, and that is that the table of nation, the table of nations is unique in all of ancient literature. There's nothing in all of ancient literature, even in the ancient Mesopotamia uh, uh, legends and 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 writings and things. There's nothing that compares to the table of nations. Okay, and and that's that's intriguing to me. That's interesting to me because. Uh, because as, as kind of pedantic and, and, and maybe uh, to some degree uh, uh, boring, if you will, this might appear to be on the surface, it seems like it's pretty significant, doesn't it? I mean, he's listing for us all these nations of the earth and where they come from. And you would think that people would be interested in that, okay? And that they would write about it and they would think about it. But in reality, this account in the scriptures is the only account that we we have of the beginning of all these nations okay i think maybe there's a couple reasons for that but but one of them in particular is is, is an aspect of human nature that you're familiar with and that's what we call ethnocentricity what do we mean by that okay we all tend to basically see our world, our world view is pretty much centered upon ourselves. Why is that? Okay, because it's all about me. There's an element of selfishness there, but why else? That's what we have the most information on. Okay, what else? That's all we know. It's all we know. It's. It's 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 how we see the world. We look out from here. When you know, when we get done with this class, and uh, we, if we were all to go home and sit at our dinner tables and discuss the class today, I would discuss the class from my perspective. I would tell my people around my table how I saw the class. You all, when you sat and if you talked with your family about it, you would talk about how you saw it. It's because it's your perspective. Because none of us are omniscient. And none of us are omnipresent, right? So we all see things from our perspective. Well, that's way. That's the way that things always are in the world. They always have. You can't get away from that. That's just the reality of human experience. You can do things to compensate for that. You can do things to allow for that. But you can't. You can't totally overcome it. So in ancient times, the Egyptians, as they viewed the world, they viewed the world as what? As what? What was the center of their world? Egypt, okay? Egypt was the center of their world. To the Babylonians, Babylon was the center of their world. To the Persians, Persia was the center of their world, okay? And so there wasn't a whole lot of interest in all these other nations and why they were out there and what they were doing and how they got there, okay? It really wasn't all that important to them, okay? And so we really only have one clear table of the nations in all of ancient literature and that is in the inspired scriptures okay now take for a minute put yourself in the setting 
of someone who is first exposed to this table of the nations. For whom was it first written? The Jews when? When they were in the wilderness. Okay, remember the whole Pentateuch was written for the Jews in the wilderness to help to help frame their worldview having come out of Egypt and prepare them as they get ready to enter into uh, into Palestine. Okay, so so this is when it is written. So just kind of take for a minute and just kind of fire up your imagination, try and give yourself a little little different ethnocentric uh, point of view here. Okay, and think of yourself as a Jew sitting in his tent out there somewhere in the middle of the desert. Okay, and and you've gotten hot off the press. You've gotten your first copy of the book of Genesis. You know, they just, you know, they just printed up the paperbacks and they distributed them and everybody got their free copy. Of course, it wasn't quite like that. But so you've got, you've got your copy, your first copy of the book of Genesis and you're sitting there in your tent and reading it by candlelight or by the light of the, of the uh, tower of fire or whatever. You're sitting there and you're, you're reading your first copy or if you're illiterate, you're hearing somebody else read it to you and you come to the table of nations. Now, you are a former slave. And your father was a slave before you. And his father was a slave before him. And his father was a slave before him. You're a slave from a long line of slaves. And you've come out of Egypt... And you've had this remarkable encounter that we talked about uh, several months ago in our study, the encounter at Horeb. You've had this remarkable encounter with the God of creation at Mount Sinai. <laughs> you've heard Him speak. You've seen the fire. You've seen the flame. You've entered into covenant with Him. Okay. And now you are wandering around in the desert and you're getting ready to go into, uh, go into the promised land. And you read this table of the nations. You've never heard anything like this before. And you know there's all these people groups out there. You know they're out there and, and you've heard about them and you've seen some of them because you used to live in Egypt and many of them would come and pass through Egypt and that sort of thing. And you've been exposed to them, but you really don't know anything about them. And now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is placed in your hands or in your ears the table of nations. And the obvious question that I would ask myself at that point is, why? What is... I mean, we read this passage and, and probably when you read the book of Genesis, typically you read through Genesis chapter 11 and you can't wait to get on to chapter 11 where you get uh, into the Tower of Babel and the other exciting stuff and get on to the story of Abraham in chapter 12. You really want to get there, so we just kind of... Scoot right on through chapter 10. But the Holy Spirit, for some reason, included chapter 10 in the Holy Writ. And He wanted the children of Israel, as they're sitting out there in the desert, having come out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt and preparing to enter into the, the promised land, the covenant land of promise, uh, as they're preparing to do that, the Holy Spirit has given them this table of the nations. And suddenly we go, wait a minute, there's got to be something significant about this. It's got to be more than just a list of names. There's got to be some significance of this 
to the son of Abraham who's sitting there in his tent out there in the middle of the desert having come out of slavery and getting ready to go into the promised land. Well, those are some of the things we want to think about today. Okay. Um, first of all, let's just kind of let's let's kind of get a, a lay of the land in the table of nations. Okay. Uh, you probably didn't count these as I went through them, and in fact, it's very uh, how they're counted is a little tricky, and we won't go into all that. But most commentators agree that if you if you understand the passage properly, there are 70 distinct nations represented in the table of nations. Okay, 70 nations. Okay, and uh, and there is apparently some significance to that. Both the number seven and the number ten in Scripture have the representation of completeness. They represent or they give the sense of completeness. Okay, so. The idea here is that the writer of the table of nations, whether Moses is simply recording for us something that, that he has received or he has received it directly by, uh, uh, through his own research under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how Moses compiles the list, I, 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 I don't know. But he comes up with 70 distinct nations. Now, what's important, that number 70 is important, okay? And the reason that it's important is because to some degree it's artificially arrived at. And what I mean by that is it's very clear as you go through the passage, and you may not have noticed this, or you may have, but as you go through the passage, it's clear that a lot of names are left out. Okay? For example, uh, in uh, chapter uh, 10, uh, in verse 2, it says, The sons of Japheth were Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshach and Terus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Rip. Why am I doing this again? And Riphah and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elisha and Tarshish and Kittim and Dodam. From these, the coastlands of the nations, etc., etc. Do you notice what's missing there? Yeah, <laughs> most of uh, most of Japheth's grandsons are missing. It lists seven sons of his, and then it lists some of his grandsons, but it doesn't list all of them. Okay, and and the writer in doing that manages to come up with a list of fourteen names, two times seven. Okay, uh, you go as you go on down through the passage, you find that he does the same thing all the way through the passage. He selectively chooses to list the descendants of one person and not the descendants of another. Okay. And in doing so, he manages to come up with a list of 70 nations. Okay. And so when we realize that, we go, maybe he's trying to tell us something. Maybe, because it's not that he just didn't tell us everything there was to tell us. But he did it such, in such a way as to give us a number that is significant to, uh, to the Jewish mind, to the Hebrew mind. Okay? And so the idea that's communicated to us with this number of 70 is it's the number of completion. In other words, without detailing every single descendant of the sons of Noah, the writer here has managed to communicate to us that this is essentially a complete list 
This is a list of all the peoples of the world. In other words, he's trying to communicate to us something about all the nations of the world. And one of the things he's trying to tell us about all the nations of the world is that they are all the descendants of Noah. Okay? They all come from Noah and from Noah's three sons. So when you're sitting out there in your tent and you're reading this table of the nations, you're going, okay, we all come from Noah. All the world and all the nation comes from Noah. So they're all over the place and they're spread and most of them come from places I will never hear of or will never be or ever see. But everybody out there is my brother. Everybody out there I'm related to. (laughs) Now, I find that pretty interesting that God goes out of His way before the children of Israel ever get into the promised land. They've just come out of slavery. They've just entered into a covenant relationship with God. And God has told them that they are a peculiar people, a people for His own possession. And then He sets down and He sets them down and He tells them, listen, I want you to understand something. I have chosen you, but you are not better than anybody else. I am the sovereign and providential God of all the nations. And of course, Israel very quickly loses sight of this reality and they begin to think of themselves not only as as being graciously chosen by God for His purposes, but they begin to think that they are somehow better than everybody else. Okay? And, and so one of the things that's interesting to me is that God is trying to communicate to them, obviously, listen, all of the nations, they come from the same place. And all these people out here, they're your brothers and sisters. Okay? You're connected with them. You're related to them. Okay? And it becomes very clear that where they are is because God has placed them there. That it's all part of God's Sovereign plan. Okay? For example, flip over real quickly to the last book in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, and chapter 32. And we have in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy the beginning of the Song of Moses. Moses, towards the end of his life and towards the end of their sojourn in the wilderness, right before they enter into the Promised Land, composes the Song of Moses. Okay? And then he says in verse 7. In his song, Moses says, Remember the days of old. This is 32, Deuteronomy 32, 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man and set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel, For the Lord's portion is His people. Jacob is the allotment of His inheritance. And we learn something about Moses' perspective on all this. Okay, That that Moses is saying that there there was a point in time when the Lord gave the nations their inheritance. And specifically he means when they separated them into their lands. That God did that. And that when God put such and such people in this part of the world... That was their inheritance. Now, the children of Israel are different. Okay? In this passage, the children of Israel stand distinct. And how do they stand distinct? 
because they're the Lord's inheritance, okay? We'll talk more about this in a minute. But the children of Israel are are different in some way from the other nations of the world. And that the other nations of the world, he speaks of them getting their inheritance in the land, but when he speaks of the children of Israel, he speaks of them being the Lord's inheritance. Okay, now, developing this thought, thought a little bit further, Paul standing on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, and you might turn over there. Mars standing on, on uh, Paul standing on Mars Hill there in Athens. I've been there and stood there on this place. And... Uh, uh, he's preaching then to these total pagans. Uh, so these guys just, you know, they haven't heard any of this stuff about the Jews and the gospel and Christ. You know, oh, this is just totally, for, it's just out of, from left field from there for them. But Paul is preaching to them and he says in verse 23, For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Who's He talking about? Who's the one man? Noah, okay. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the appointed to- their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So the boundaries of people's habitation of all the peoples of the earth is set by whom? Come on, folks. God, okay. For what purpose? Next verse. That they might seek for Him. And so we discover, and we'll talk more about this next week when we talk about Babel, but so we discover that in God's separating the nations into their various places, that in His providential care and His gracious concern for all the nations, He put them where they were and established their times and the boundaries of their habitations in order that they would seek for Him. Sure does. <laughs> it makes you see everything different. And I'm sure that's exactly why God gave the table of nations to the children of Israel in the wilderness. So they'd see themselves differently too. So they'd see themselves from God's perspective. I have a question. Like in chapter 10, I noticed there's about three places where it says that they were divided after their languages. Yes. And then that's before 11 verse 1 where it says the earth is of one way. Yes. So is this a sort of preview of Yes, yes. Chapter 11 kind of foreshadows, or chapter 10 foreshadows what's going to happen in chapter 11. Yes. And it does. Three times it does that, as you were pointing out, Ryan. In verse 5 of chapter 10, it says, For these coastlands, from these coastlands, the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. And that's after he's described the sons of Japheth. Then he describes the sons of Ham. And at the end of his discussion about the sons of Ham, in, uh, in uh, verse uh, 20 it says, These are the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, and by their nations. And then he goes into talking about the sons of Shem. And in verse 30, uh, uh, 31 he says, These are the sons of Shem according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. And so uh, that, w- that was good that you noticed that. 
uh, Ryan. It's, it's part of the breakdown of the passage. We're talking about the layout of the table of nations and we've talked about there being 70 nations. And now we see that it's broken down into three categories or three divisions. And the three divisions are the three sons of Noah. Okay? And at the conclusion of each one of those divisions, he makes this point that... Uh, let me read it so I get it right again. Uh, he makes the point that the... That, that the descendants of each one of these three sons is identified according to his language, his family, his nation, and his land. Four things okay, that he says mark or distinguish each one of these various ethnic groups, if you want to call them that. Okay? So there are these identifying markers by which you can say this is a people and this is a people and this is a people and this is a people. Okay? And those identifying marks are their land, their language, their family, and their nation. Okay? Now, I don't want to go into a lot of detail on that. But that's the way the passage is broken down. Now, you'll notice that he does it sequentially. He does Jaseph, Ham, and Shem. What he's doing, when he does Japheth, his, when he discusses Japheth and Japheth's descendants, what he's doing is he's, is he's starting the furthest out. He's, excuse me, from the perspective of of the Jew, from the perspective of the Israelite, he's starting with the ones who are the furthest out, the Gentiles, if you will. Okay, uh, There are more Gentiles here than just the sons of Japheth. But those that are way out on the coastlands, those that are out on the horizon, those that are out on the fringe. Okay, So he, so he talks about them. He talks about, uh, some, just, just for example, he talks about Magog, which is an area that uh, involves people up in the region of Russia. He talks about Madai, which involves people from northern Iran. He talks about Tubal and Meshech, which includes people from Armenia and the Black Sea. And he talks about Tarshish, which is people from Spain. We're talking about way out. Okay, from the perspective of the Jew, from the perspective of the sons of Israel. Then after he talks about the sons of Japheth, he goes on and he talks about the descendants of Ham. Now, these are much closer in. These are the neighbors and oftentimes the sworn enemies of Israel. There's Cush, Ethiopian Arabia. There's Mizraim, which is Egypt. There's Put, which is in northern Africa. There's Nimrod, who comes from Mesopotamia and Assyria. And there's the Canaanites, who of course occupy Palestine itself. Okay. And then you move on closer in, yet you come to the descendants of Shem. And not so much closer geographically, but closer relationally because the Shem, of course, uh, the descendants of Shem are the closest relatives to the Israelites. And you have Elam, which is in southern Iran, and you have Asher, who they were in Assyria. You have Lud, who was in Asia Minor. You have Uzal, who was in Yemen. And you have Ophir, who was in southwest Arabia. Those are just some examples that I just kind of pulled up to, to illustrate. Of course, they, with many of the names, not with all these names, but with many of these 70 nations, they can identify where these people lived at the time that the Table of Nations was written. And I'm just, I was just giving you a few examples there. Okay? Now, <clears throat> with everything we've said so far, it is interesting that there's something... That, as I mentioned, he doesn't include everything in the Table of Nations, he's, but he's trying to give a picture to the Jews. Okay? But if you're sitting there in your tent now again in the desert and you're reading this, there's, there's something missing from, the, from this Table of Nations that just stands out to you. Just like a sore thumb and you go, hmm, there's something missing here. What is that? What's missing from the table of nations that you would notice if you were sitting out there in your desert reading it? Us. 
us, <laughs> Israel. Okay? Israel isn't in there. Israel is not in the table of nations. Turn over to uh, uh, Numbers chapter 23. And this is, the, this is one of the prophecies of Balaam. And you read those and you always go, okay, should I believe these or not? But this is one of the prophecies of Balaam. And notice what he says in chapter 23, in verse 9, as he's talking about Israel. He says, as I see him from the top of the rocks, this is when he was looking out at Israel, and I look at him from the hills, behold, the people, the people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. And you go, oh, Balaam even noticed that. That Israel was not in the table of nations. Now, if I was an Israelite, that would be significant to me. I would go, why am I not in there? You know, we're a nation with two million people. Okay. But remember, in verse 5 and verse 20 and verse 31, the defining characteristic of each of the people groups is mentioned. Four things. And you're sitting in your tent out in the wilderness. What's missing in your experience out of those four things? The land. You don't have a land. And in fact, you haven't had a land since God called Abraham out of the land of Ur. Remember that? And we'll get to that in chapter 12. First couple of verses of chapter 12. God speaks to Abraham. He says, you come out from your country and from your people. And Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 of Hebrews that from that time forward, Abraham wandered around, wandered about as an alien in the land of promise. And so the Jews don't have a land. And from the days of Abraham, they've not handled, had a land. They've been aliens and then they were slaves in Egypt. And Egypt was not their land. They don't have a land. And so here they are off all by themselves out in the middle of the desert and they're not reckoned among the nations of Israel, the nations of the world. And the reason for that is because God had a special purpose for them. And when we get to chapter 12, we're going to discover that special purpose, which is what? Excuse me? I hear whispers. I don't... <laughs> okay, what, 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 what purpose does God have? Be, in, in, as far as the children of Israel are concerned and the rest of the world. You, you know this. That's right. That through the Israelites, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And, and so there's an interesting thing in that passage in Deuteronomy, if you flip back there and you look at it again. Uh, I think that's it. I hope I got the right verse here. Uh, yes. Verse 8. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of man, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. Hmm? You notice that? He says that he separated the nations and established their boundaries according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. In the table of nations, how many nations are there? Seventy. How many children of Israel went up into Egypt? Twelve. 
70. And so there is apparently some correspondence, some significance attached, according to Moses, in the Song of Moses, there's apparently some significant significance attached to the number of the sons of Israel and the number of the nations and where they are assigned. Their place of habitation. And the reason for that is because it is God's purpose that through the children of Israel, all the nations of the earth will find their blessing. And so Israel is not reckoned among the nations in part because they don't have a land at the time of the writing of the table of nations, but also because God really has a special purpose for them and they are his inheritance. And through them, he intends to bless all the nations of the earth. And what he wants you to understand sitting there in your tent in the middle of the desert reading your little paperback copy of the Table of Nations by candlelight is he wants you to realize that you're a part of something much bigger than you. And that God is sovereignly and providentially working and directing, and we'll see more of this next week in chapter 11, in, in, in how the nations align themselves and where they go and where they live and their times and the boundaries of their habitations in order that they might seek Him. <clears throat> and part of that plan is that He might use Israel in order to display the light of His glory to all of the nations. Now, tragically, Israel doesn't learn the lesson of the table of nations. And so they become very self-centered and very self-preoccupied. So much so that ultimately when the Messiah comes, they reject him. And it becomes necessary then, we read in Romans 9, 10, and 11, it becomes necessary then for God temporarily to set Israel aside. If you won't accept my Messiah and you won't accept your place and your responsibility to the nations of the world, I will set you aside and in his place, he sets what? The church. Us. And so the responsibility that was incumbent upon Israel to be a light of the glory of God to all the nations has now been passed to you and I. Now, Israel became very smug and they became very arrogant about their special relationship with God and because of their smugness and because of their arrogance, they neglected their responsibility to the nations. Will we do the same? It's very easy for us as Christians, isn't it? In our nice, comfortable churches and our nice, comfortable lifestyle, living here in nice, comfortable America, to forget that all those people out there are our brothers and sisters. And that we have a moral obligation and responsibility to them to be a light of the glory of God to them. God has put them where they are and God has given them their languages and He has set their times and the boundaries of their habitations in order that they might seek Him. But how can they seek Him if they do not hear of Him? And so, in the table of nations, we see not only the responsibility of Israel, but we see our responsibilities as well. Now, as you read through the table of nations, you'll probably notice that there are uh, kind of three distinct features that stand out as you read through the passage. And, and just briefly here at the end, I want to point those out to you. 
uh, one of them, not the first one, is that when he gets to the Canaanites, he does something with the Canaanites that he, doesn't, he didn't do with any of the rest of the nations that he describes there. But you'll notice in verse 19, what does he do? Okay, he very carefully delineates their territory, not in some general area that they're clear out there in the east or whatever, but very specifically by city, you know, from this city to this city and this city. to This is where that. Why does he do that? Okay, he knows there's going to be a dispute. What else? It's the promised land. It's the land that's promised to Abraham and to his descendants. Okay. And, and, and there is going to be, uh, there's going to be some disagreement about this land as it continues even to today. Okay? But he wants them to understand that these, the Canaanites, they're the ones you're going to have to deal with. Okay? And they are being thrown off their land, not because God is preferential to the Jews, but because of the wickedness and sin of the Canaanites. Okay? He makes it very clear that they are being dispossessed because of their immorality and their gross wickedness is why they're being thrown off of their land. Okay? Well, so that's one unique feature of the Table of Nations. What's another, something else that stands out to you as different than the rest of the table? It's pretty obvious. Down there about verse 8 or so. <laughs> and following. Okay, he talks very specifically about Nimrod, this guy Nimrod. Okay, and he tells us several things about him. He tells us, he tells us that he was a mighty man. He tells us he was a, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Okay, what does all that mean? Well, the refer, the word mighty there means tyrant. The guy was a tyrant. He was a very powerful tyrant. And when it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, that was that was really a a characteristic of the great kings of ancient times. Is that they were known. One of the ways they were uh, one of their characteristics was that they were great, mighty hunters. Okay, So in identifying Nimrod as this great, mighty hunter before the Lord and this mighty person, he's identifying him as really the first great, despotic, tyrannical emperor. Okay, And he, he controls a vast area of land. You'll notice it describes the cities that he built. Two of them stand out to us. What are they? Babylon and or Babel and Nineveh. Okay, two great cities that that he and other great cities that he built too. Okay, so this this guy is this great, powerful, mighty tyrant, and his name means we will rebel. Now we come to now that we understand that we know that his name means we will rebel. We know he was a tyrant, and we know that one of the places that he helped to build was Babel. Then we discover something about him, don't we? <laughs> we discover that he was really in on this whole thing we're going to talk about next week in Genesis chapter 11. The construction of the city and tower of Babel. Okay? Or Babylon. Okay? And, and so, the writer of the Table of Nations goes out of his way to point this guy out to us because this guy is going to play a significant role in future events and what God does. Okay? Now, let me give you just a little sneak preview next week, give you a little treat from next week, is that here is this great, mighty man who is rebelling against the Lord and leading 
pretty much most of the rest of the population of the world in a rebellion against the God of creation. And through his rebellion and, and the things that he instigates, it ne- becomes necessary for God then to separate the nations, right? That's what we're going to t- talk about next week in, in this Tower of Babel story. Okay? But again, why did God separate the nations? Acts chapter 17. So that they would seek Him. So even in this powerful, mighty, tyrannical rebel, God providentially works for the redemption of mankind. Okay? Well, and then there's another guy that stands out or another, another feature in the passage, you'll notice that it says about Shem in verse 21, it says, Shem, the father of the children, the father of all the children of Eber. And you go, oh, who's Eber? Well, you don't find out who Eber is until you get about three generations removed from Shem and you find out that Eber was the father of Joktum and Peleg. And you go, oh, well, that answers everything, right? <laughs> Well, do you notice when he, when he says that Shem was the father of the children of Eber and then he gets to Eber and he tells us about the two children of Eber, Joktum and Peleg, what's the difference between how the writer of the table reports on Joktum and how he reports on Peleg? Okay. He doesn't tell us anything about Peleg's kids, does he? He just tells us about Joktum's. And he tells us, he lists all of Joktum's sons and uh, maybe some grandsons in there, I don't know. But he tells us about the descendants of Joktum and then he tells us that they lived in the hill country of the east. Well, that again is a foreshadowing of Babylon and Babel. And so we learn that the descendants of Joktum, they get sucked into this whole thing that goes on in Babel. But nothing is said about the descendants of Peleg. All we learn about Peleg is that in his day, the the peoples of the earth were separated or divided. Well, actually, there are two clear, I think, divisions that are associated with Peleg. And the first that it is in his lifetime, in the lifetime of Peleg, which is sometime between 100 and and 300 or so, 350 years, somewhere between 100 and 350 years after the flood. Okay, so there's about a 250-year lifespan, a lifetime there, span there. Sometime during that time is the incident of the Tower of Babel when the nations are divided. And that's one of the characteristics of Peleg. But there were a lot of people alive during the life of time of, Pel- of, time of the division. So why weren't they mentioned as significant? Okay, Because there's something else significant about Peleg. Actually, a couple things. One is that not only is Peleg in his lifetime does this division of the nations come, but in Peleg we have the division again of the two lines. Remember, all the way through Genesis we've been talking about these two lines, the righteous line and the unrighteous line. And in Peleg and his, son and his brother Joktum, we have that division occurs again, the division between the righteous and the unrighteous line. And as we trace the lineage of Peleg, which we will do, just not in the table of nations, as we trace the lineage of Peleg, we will eventually get to Abraham. Okay? 
So we find out that the righteous line is coming through Peleg. But what's interesting is the descendants of Joktum, they become sucked in and become involved in this whole worldwide, uh, I say worldwide, a population, the whole population of the world, involved in this whole thing about building the city and the Tower of Babel. And when we get to that next week, we'll discover the reason they did that is because they wanted to make a name for themselves. They were seeking their own glory. That's the characteristic of the descendants or the line of the wicked, the line of the unrighteous, is they seek a name for themselves. But when we follow in chapter, uh, later in chapter 11, when we follow through the descendants of the line of Peleg, the line of the righteous, we come ultimately to Abraham. And in chapter 12, in the first couple of verses of chapter 12, we discover that God promises to Abraham, I will make of you a what? Great name. And so the contrast, the division, another division, the first division is the division of the nations, but the other division that's associated with Peleg is that division between the unrighteous line who seeks glory and a name for themselves and the righteous line who receive their name and their glory from God. Okay? So there's a lot in that chapter, isn't there? We could talk about a lot more. But at any rate, we're done for today. Next week we'll go on to chapter uh, chapter, uh, 11. Yes. Oh, yes, I do have study sheets. I'll pass them out. Thank you.